John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1421.DE2609, certificate number 5324. Are you referring to my fleece jacket? <laughs> it's a Welsh Patagonia. <laughs> this is a, you and I are the prom, most prominent Welsh American podcast. I would assume we're we're a kind of a leading voice in the in the Welsh American podcast community. Yeah, we never talk about the fact that you and I both have Welsh heritage. It's come up a couple times, but it is it's true that that among prominent American Welshmen, you and I stand atop the field. There are two million. Welsh Americans today, really? and only three million Welsh people in Wales. So we're we're getting close. <laughs> but that means someone sure, sure. who has like a Welsh great grandmother, and right? that's me as well. Like you know, my parents always made much of my Welsh heritage. But I texted them yesterday to be like, okay, what's the real deal? And my dad is like, I don't know if there's any on my side. On your mom's side, uh, her dad was actually Scottish, so it's really your maternal grandmother who was pretty Welsh and. You know, yeah. that's where the stuff is in the churchyards. But they don't say Jennings because it's a maternal grandmother. So I'm I'm a quarter Welsh at best. Yeah, my father's father was in it, both of his parents were from Wales. You're more Welsh. Well, so I'm exactly one quarter Welsh. But my mother's family and all of the people everyone that came to Virginia in 1630, uh, they all came from that area of the UK right across the four, you know, right across the swamp basically, or the tidal slough from Wales. So it feels although, not their slaves. Their slaves yeah, didn't. No, no, no. Their slaves didn't. But uh but the but the all of the all of us come from England and we all come from that little that little corner of what would it be? Cornwall, I guess. Have you you've been to Wales, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we played in Wales a few times, and I felt a symbiosis there. Where are the shows? In Cardiff and in in uh, Newport. We never went north because there's why would you? What's up there? <laughs> the Stone Age people. I where's, think. Where's that town from? The Prisoner. I want to go there. <laughs> but that area down along you know along the southern coast where the population is, yeah. you know, we were coal miners there and not proto 
we were probably throwing stones at the British and at the Romans until the 1920s, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) As recently as last week, a Welshman, a Welsh child threw a rock at a bobby that hit his uh, hat and he said, what's all this then? Yeah, it was, I think. He was chewing on his chin strap like the bobbies at the end of uh, Get Back or Let It Be. My grandfather learned to write and that was, that was. Is that why they kicked him out? Yeah, that was probably the (laughs) top, top accomplishment. That was the last straw for Wales. (laughs) And I don't mean to tease the Welsh, but you know. Well, that's the interesting. Who can you tease? That's the interesting thing about the Welsh is there are two million of them in America, you know, kind of not on par, but, you know, with the same waves of migration that produced, you know, big Irish American, proud Irish American and Scottish American And similar diaspora sort of like there's no food here in Wales and there, and so we're headed to the Americas. Yeah. Things aren't going great here. We'll, we'll see why they left. And yet, despite all that, a wealth of delightful cultural stereotypes, both offensive and otherwise about the Scots and the Irish and pretty much every European group that came over there. But, but in the Western hemisphere, at least very little Welsh stereotyping. How do you, how do you zing the Welsh? Well, I, I, uh, I was, how do you John zing the Welsh? I do it all the time. Uh, they're very, uh, they're great singers and they're, wow, very, you got them. They're very sad. <laughs> Tom uh, Jones. And, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was reading an interview with Richard Burton, not very long ago, where he was talking about his childhood, which was hard scrabble, really, uh, also coal mining and and uh, pretty rough, pretty rough childhood. His father was was um, you know a, a drunk and a uh, and a pugilist. And just you, already, you already said he was Welsh. It's <laughs> reading reading Richard Burton's story as told to whatever Johnny Carson or Dick Cavett, I felt like a, a real kinship. I was like, yeah, right. I mean. You know, his father kept falling into a ravine, just as my great-grandfather probably couldn't keep from falling into a ravine. Is that what Dick Cavett got out of Richard Burton all the yeah. time? It was like, his dad fell into a ravine. Uh, my dad famously got drunk and fell into a ravine, and then 30 years later got drunk and fell into the other side of the ravine. There is a, a great Irish tradition, in, or a great Irish, a great Welsh tradition in the arts. You know, you mentioned Richard yeah. Burton, but also Anthony Hopkins and... Like all these actors that Americans think of as great British actors, Catherine Zeta-Jones, yeah, Michael Sheen, any actor that has a weird name with an I or an RH in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just see these people on British detective shows and we think, ah, a Britishman, a Briton. But in England, you know, they're well aware that there's a a distinctly Welsh Welsh cultural character. Have you seen that that police procedural that's, that's in Welsh? There's a there's a police procedural. But it was in Welsh. No, no BBC, BBC Eight. No, there's a TV show called Hinterland, which is filmed in Wales, and insanely, this is how they do the show. They film a scene in English, and then they reset and film the exact same scene in Welsh. And the entire TV show, it's like three seasons long. Maybe they do the Welsh one first. And you and the the show is just that's is the English scene, then the Welsh scene. That would be impenetrable. But I think if you watch the, if you could, if you understood Welsh and you watched the show in English and then in Welsh, it's not dubbed. It's a completely different artwork. Different takes. Yeah. A different take of every scene. Did you know that's true of also the original Bela Lugosi Dracula movie? What? Was it in Romanian and English? It was in Welsh. No, it was shot in uh, English and Spanish. Really? Yeah, they would do a take in English, and then uh, I think it's not Lugosi in the Spanish one. They would just bring in the other, the Spanish language crew. 
and and, and, and Spanish would, actors, and they would redo the same scene. Yeah, I think it's um, yeah, I think it's a whole different cast because you can't imagine Bella Lugosi learning phonetic Spanish to do that. If you watch Hinterland, which I have done, it really gives you an unsurprising portrait of Wales as a dark, rainy, sad, desolate place. That's why they always set American detective shows here in the Northwest. Yeah. Because you can anything could happen up there in that gloomy, drizzly corner. Do you feel like we came... We're the whales of America. We ended up here, uh, our, our immigrant families, you know, uh, were like drawn to the Northwest because it was like, ah, I, I don't want to live in a place that's so sunny. I, I want to be in a depressed place like Seattle. Actually, the centers of Welsh culture in America, and I'm sure you know this, say it with me, Utica Ut- and... Utah. Scranton. Oh, really? Yeah. Utica and Scranton. Yeah, those were the, the 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 Welsh the golden age of Welsh America. Those were the centers of colonization. Oh, uh, right. And there's actually towns in Pennsylvania. They're like wealthy suburbs of of Philadelphia that have conspicuously Welsh names. The High Line area outside of Philadelphia, which is like all their Gold Coast homes, uh-huh. like the big mansions. The Gilded Age mansions—they all have Welsh names because that was that was, those were Welsh settlements, and, we and actually, that's where Bryn Mawr is. Oh yeah. yeah, if you see a weird Y, yeah, if you see a weird Y <laughs> by the side of the road, uh, we had a bunch of requests for Welsh diaspora omnibus shows from people in Wales or from people in Scranton, <laughs> from a non. People not in Wales, they appear to be Americans of various kinds. I don't know to what degree. Hmm. I mean, this particular show about the Welsh of South America was um, requested by our friend Pablo, not a not that Welsh a name. Right. Um, but it, but if you put a Y in the middle, <laughs> P-Y-B-L. Yeah, Timothy Dalton's real Y-O. name is Pablo Dalton. <laughs> um, but uh, also, uh, we who was it? Some other uh, listener. Oh, it was it was Jack. We just did his show about the nutshell studies and the beginnings of forensic science. He had no less than two ideas for shows about the Welsh in the New World. Um, and so we'll, we'll kind of string those together here. And, and he began at the very beginning with Prince Madoc. Are you familiar with this story that there was a some kind of a exiled Welsh prince who sailed yeah, to who, the New World? Who was and, in America in the in the what, 1400s, 1300s, 1200s? Yeah, 12th century, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Elizabethan times, this was great because it really stuck it to the Spaniards. You oh, know, right. like, you, you guys can't hang out there. We've had a colony there since 11, blah, blah, blah. But there were legends of a Welsh-speaking population of Native Americans on the plains who were inexplicably... Yeah, that's... Inexplic- oh, is that part of your story? I think we should do Prince Badock at some point. Yeah. But, you know, that's the beginning of the idea that the Welsh, you know, I guess being near the, the western tip of the island of Britain would be the would be the ones to discover America. Yeah, although they were probably clinging to a log. And they would have had to get across Ireland somehow. Oh, that's easy to do. You can go around. There's no resistance there. There's a train. You know, Roderick, my last name, was originally spelled the earliest Roderick when when they encountered the British and and got their name Christianized. The name was spelled R Y or I'm sorry, R H Y D D R C H. It doesn't end with a G. I was hoping it would end with no. a G or two. No. I don't I don't know if they had invented the G by then. Yeah, the Welsh language is a real curio to to uh, outside eyes. And it's one of the 
you know, in a world with little Welsh stereotyping, a lot of what we know about them are kind of the crazy, the fun names. And they play on that. You know, you remember the little town of, it's usually called Lawnfair, but as a 20th century, I think, publicity gimmick, they, you know, added a whole, what, 85 letter <laughs> extension to their name and made it a 20 foot long thing at the train station. And you have to go to Lawnfair, pull, we'll go, it's in a, it's in an animal collective song, I think. All of the street signs in Wales, you know, they're 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 doing the push to to reinvigorate the language. Yeah. And so everywhere you go there, you have to try and figure out what these street signs are saying. I don't know if the language is actually thriving, but there are a lot of people that speak Welsh. Richard Richard Burton was fluent in Welsh. They're well, doing this whole TV show in Welsh. They're doing half of it in Welsh. Well, yeah, well that's right. I mean, the better half. It's it's Schrodinger's. Detectives show you don't like it's either zero percent Welsh or one hundred percent Welsh until you until you flip the dial. I feel like like Money Heist. I should be watching it in Welsh but with subtitles. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen Money Heist in Welsh? It's amazing. Why were you watching Money Heist in Welsh? <laughs> you just watch Money Heist because the sound is mixed so weird. You turned on the subtitles. Yeah, it's really it's really hard. The stereotypes about the Welsh. Uh, now, is the Welsh language? It's a it's a Gaelic language. It is. Like one of the one of the three Gaelic languages that survive. Uh, Are there more yes. Gaelic languages we don't know about? The Breton Yeah, I think cuz aren't there northern I mean Breton, right? In uh in northern France. Right. Is that one of the three you're counting? Well, I guess Irish and Scottish. So four. The Celtic language family includes Well, there's also um is Manx its own language or is that a dialect? Oh. Hmm. I don't know. Irish, Welsh, Breton, Scots, Gaelish, Cornish, and Manx. Cornish? Uh, yeah, 2,000 people in Cornwall still speak <laughs> Cornish. I don't, to each other, apparently. Well, uh, so th- this is this is kind of what's confusing to me. Like, uh, my if my English relatives are all from Cornwall or from whatever, that, that area around Bristol, which isn't Cornwall typically, but I guess not. Typically is the wrong word. It's literally not Cornwall. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> Technically. Car- cartographically. Uh, but, you know, if they're all from there and they're all like the last Celtic speak, you can see what the people that still speak a Celtic language. It's literally, literally parts of the map no one wants to go to. Yeah, got pushed to the very edge. It really is like any other kind of, yeah, colonial. I mean, I don't want to say the English colonized the Welsh. but Oh, no, that's what they would say. But they treated them as like, as, as weirdos. Like if you read in Shakespeare, I mean, that's kind of the first place where I'm aware of what cultural stereotypes about the Welsh might be. Um, Shakespeare had comic and sinister Welsh characters. Mm-hmm. Um, like in Henry V, there's a kind of a goofy guy named Flewellen who uses a lot of, um, he says, look you a lot, which must have been a hilarious Welshism <laughs> of the time. And he messes up his consonants. So it, it, maybe that's the offensive, oh. that's the equivalent of one of our, you know, like you like you might do to indicate some kind of pigeon speech. Right, or, right. Or, uh, you know, some consonant switch to make, to he make misses Asians up his, look backwards. His consonants in a pronounceable way, just like I do. Yeah, I like mean, a ventriloquist. Yeah, like saying <laughs> breakfast or, or a bastic of potatoes. Yeah, and he's not supposed to be a smart guy because the Welsh were regarded as kind of a, a backward rural people right. can confirm uh, <laughs> that they were regarded that way. You're not yeah, saying yeah. anything about no, their, no, 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 their quality. No, not that they still are. No. But this guy wears a, this character in Henry V wears a leak from his hat and he, he explains that it's a, <laughs> it's a patriotic Welsh day. I still find that funny. I mean, that's the worst. That's you know, even, 
even other racist food-based stereotypes, you don't you don't dangle the offending food from the hat. He put a leek in, in his hat and called it macaroni. <laughs> in Henry the Fourth, there's like an evil Welsh prince who's like the off-screen villain, and he is very much treated as the head of an army that will like he's it's it, it might as well be um, South Sea's headhunters, you know, uh-huh. like. Look out for the Welsh over those hills and rivers. They'll do anything. You know, we uh, can confirm. They're brutal. And then in Merry Wives of Windsor, there's, I think, just a, a talkative a French, a Welsh character who just won't shut up. So they're, they kind of have some of that Irish gift of gab stereotype. Right. Today, there's not much. Like, I, I was like, what are the stereotypes about the Welsh today? If I wanted to offend the Welsh, what would I say today? It's, it's really rough. They like rugby. Well, you know, apparently we, they we, sing in our idiom to Welsh is to go back on a debt. I was, and that's and absolutely, that's, and that's now considered uh, kind of a pejorative term that should not be used any more than you would use other kinds of verbs along those lines. We're really taking it to the Welsh today, though. But is that true that the Welsh were considered like? Yeah, they reneged on you know because they on, were not good to their word. Yeah, but it's just like how do you slur an entire population by saying? Well, it's like saying, you know, trigger alert, like saying Indian giver. Sure. Uh, just a way of, yes, misunderstanding something about the culture and then attributing it to a lack of integrity. And I was not aware that, like, I, I feel like Welch on a bet sounded to me like kind of American frontier speak. You uh-huh. know, something from Huckleberry Finn might say. And I think, because it, it's often Welch with a C yeah. in America. And so I... But at the same time, as a kid, I didn't realize the etymology of the verb to jip. Like right. I, you know, I thought, oh, that's the that's the nice one you say because the the bad people say to Jew. And yeah, right. clearly that's you know, jip is the progressive one. And but I think, did, I feel like I was an adult before I knew it was. I think gypsy, that's right. Which is a slur for for Roman. People. For me too. I think it would. I think I would have been in my twenties before that that dawned on me, or I read some etymology of it and realized, oh, hmm, that's a weird, but sure. Right, it's another. It's a. It's like a culture clash, idea of what debt and private property and all those things. Well, Sean, I bet mean is or are eighteen sixties English horse racing slang. Okay, and it's almost certainly a kind of a xenophobic idea of the Welsh as an untrustworthy right. people who won't pay their debts and loans. Huh. It. You know. That, I think that's a little bit uncertain, but. But the. Uh, you're right when you mentioned the you know the pride of the Welsh language as it kind of dwindles because that's what led to a lot of the Welsh diaspora colonies we're going to be talking about today. Oh, it was an attempt to preserve it was it wasn't just like let's get out of here because there are no potatoes, but it was literally like let's preserve our culture by decamping. Some of both. I mean, in the early 1800s, well, Wales was in a bad way. You know, they had been a they had been mostly a kind of a poorish farming people. And then the Industrial Revolution turned all that on its head because suddenly England needed coal and England needed steel and England needed slate. And, other, and you know, it turned out Wales was a mining right. paradise, not for the miners, for the right. English guy who, <laughs> the English foreman who ran the mine, I guess. It's all, it's all like uh, untracked mountains or was. Yeah. And so a lot of the people who got displaced by this, you know, we don't think of those coal mines as a great place to work. But, you know, the farmers who saw their world just change in a matter of decades were also like, well, the farmers were like, well, you know, where do I go if I'm being displaced by this new shift to industry? And a lot of that was the new world. And as we said, 
Utica to get, and they wanted to go hang out with the Oneida sex cult people and right. uh, Manx and Scranton because they wanted to hang out with the the Irish proto Bidens of uh, of Scranton <laughs> taking the Amtrak to DC every day. Interestingly, I looked this up. Biden, despite his Scrant- Scrantonian heritage, has no Welsh blood, but really? about a dozen of other American presidents do, including Biden's running mate. That's right, Barack Obama has really? some, has some Welsh heritage. Honorary Welshman. Well done. Uh, Was he? Born in Wales, thereby making him ineligible for the U.S. presidency. What if that was the conspiracy theory? <laughs> We're not sure where he was born. It could be Kenya, it could be Wales. Right. But in either case, right. in either case. Um, and they, you know, those populations assimilated. Um, but in the 1860s, there was a movement, there was a Welsh nationalist movement devoted to kind of protecting the language from the onslaught of English, the arts and culture from the onslaught of homogenized, modern, popular English culture. And a preacher named Michael D. Jones, hmm. who was the head of uh, Bala University, some kind of Christian school in Northern Wales, where you have said, there's nothing, but we now there, know there to be a small Christian university. Yeah, trying to Christianize the the Welsh who were living in the hills and throwing stones down. Throwing you and mistletoe <laughs> at each other to try to curse each other. So you're just mad that Bala University never invited Long Winters, basically. Yeah, it's all the way up there. That would have been we we played in Manchester. We could have just gone gone down. The only time I've ever been in Wales, we like just crossed the river for the day and went to um, Hay, the city that has the the big book festival. Oh yeah, yeah. W- Wales now is the site of the world's largest literary festival, and it's basically a town that like to rescue itself decided our thing now is going to be. You know, like a California town deciding to put a big asparagus by the interstate. They were like, we're going to have a bunch of used bookstores. So the town has like 1.8 used booksellers per capita or something. And so you went over to the to the fest? It was, it, no, no. It was no. a different time of year. Um, we played in Liverpool. That's just right across the... Uh, just We could have taken a ferry across the Mersey. Are there ferries from Liverpool to Wales? Well, there's the one across the Mersey. That, <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd have to I drive. I assumed that was just going to the other side of the Mersey. Well, it is, yeah. Just, I didn't know Jerry and the Pacemakers were on a weekend <laughs> holiday trip to You'd to have Wales. to drive a little ways, but it's not that far from there. So Michael D. Jones, it, with a group of, uh, of other like-minded, worried Welshmen, sit in their house and try to decide, look, if we want to preserve Wales, it's not going to be here because the English just keep coming. Uh, where do we go? <laughs> That's so, right. <laughs> we fired our guns, but the British kept it coming. <laughs> they're making us speak English, and it doesn't have enough whys. So I presume they're looking at a globe or an atlas because they're suggesting ideas of where you know new Wales could be established. Well, you could make it a South Wales and put it in Australia. Australia, Australia, New Zealand were considered. Yeah, yeah. Um, Vancouver Island. Interestingly, that would have been nice. Uh, yeah, there's really not much. I mean, even to this day, the provincial capital is all that's there and it's tiny. Yeah, I mean that's the the Cowichan tribe makes those wonderful sweaters that I have 11 of. But in the Itchin back in Cowichan. <laughs> that's right, that's what my daughter would say. I'm going to Why do you wear these terrible sweaters? We're going to hear from Vancouver Island people, but it is a, a sparsely populated region considering its proximity to big cities. Yeah, north of Victoria it uh it Stops. really yeah, it becomes well the the uh, the Nootka people uh famously kidnapped some British sailors and enslaved them for several years. Uh, was this an omnibus? No, no. it's a, it's a, uh, there's a wonderful book. I mean, wonderful, depending on how you feel about 
about uh, enslaving the British, one hundred percent for it. <laughs> That's paybacks in my book. It was pretty a pretty interesting story. These sailors, you know, the the uh, they they anchored in the harbor of Nootka Sound, and they were like, "Hey, let's trade. Uh, we'll give you these beads, and why don't you give us uh, all your fish or whatever?" And the Nootka came onto the ship in the middle of the night and killed everybody and and took some took some slaves. It's just a, it's one of those things we take a little bit of Northwest pride in. This seems like it will be in the omnibus. Yeah, I'll point. probably tell that story. I mean, more than I just did. <laughs> this, this was just a, a preview of coming attractions. A very popular uh, choice, because this was a religious gathering, was Palestine. Because it was a religious gathering, there was some discussion of founding a new Welsh state in Palestine in the late 19th century. Well, what... What possible problem could could have arisen from that? It's the it's the easiest part of the world yeah. to try to found a new homeland. You right? know, there's hardly anyone that wants to be in Palestine. It's really interesting that just these these six Welsh guys sitting around a fire were like, we could probably we could probably bring we could probably solve the Middle East. Yeah. We'll, we'll just head over there. What the place needs is some sad drunk troubadours. <laughs> I, I wonder what the Michael Shabon book would be like if it was the Welsh in Alaska. Yeah. Uh, well, no, wait. I know what it would be like. It would just be my family that's story. Your life, yeah. yeah. Well, they'd be very cold. Yeah, there'd be other Welshmen there instead of people from Oklahoma. For whatever reason, the conversation came to center around what was then the and today the the uh, sparsely settled prairies of southern Argentina. The Pampas, or yeah, the well, even south of the Pampas, the Patagonia, oh, the wow. kind of the yeah, right. Know. And uh, the these Welshmen had it on good authority that this was you know good, fertile, arable land. It, that it, in fact, what swung them was that it was a lot like Wales. Right, that's what you want. Right, except Palestine, not, not so much. With a with an inconvenient population of indigenous people still. That's true, but again, that would not even have been in the right. discussions back right. then. You right. know, we like like today we think of it as an inconvenience. <laughs> it certainly was it, when in, we in uh, hindsight. When, when we built this bunker here and had to displace a tribe. Uh, the um, so yeah, I don't know even know if that would have been part of the conversation. I realized as I was reading about this, I mean, this seems insane. They also had the diplomatic advantage that Argentina was looking for new uh settlement of that area because it would stave off Chilean claims. Right. That's right. We think of Ch the border between Argentina and Chile being the top of the, 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 the ridge of the Andes, but that that's wasn't... Only, that's Argentine propaganda, <laughs> right, John. That, that wasn't what Chile thought for many, many years. Look, right? if your country was eight inches wide, you would also <laughs> want to get over to, a, to the Atlantic coast, right? Hard to get over those mountains, though, yeah. even, even now. You can see why the Andes are the border. But the you know because this was such a sparsely populated part of South America, and, and because the mountains is. were so impassable, still is, yeah. And that that's hard to understand. It's kind of like... You know, when you look at the, if you look at Northern California and all of the Oregon coast, and you compare it to the East coast of the United States and the relative populations, you know, just looking at a map, you would go, why is this an unsettled area? Why is there no, why is there no Philadelphia sized city uh, there around Eureka, California? And then you go to Eureka and you understand fully why there's no city there because it is a haunted place. Well, is that it, true it, of it, southern Argentina? It's pretty far south. Like, what's the latitude of... Yes, when the Welsh got there, 
they found that they had been handed a bill of goods, possibly by a over-enthusiastic Argentine tourism and immigration department. Um, so, so Rio Gallegos, which is down at the very southern end of Argentina, is at 51 degrees south. Yeah. So that's pretty far south. But these guys were only at about 43 degrees south, which makes it more or less... Um, I mean, Seattle. Yeah, I mean, it's actually not that different from Seattle, right? right. What are we, 42? For, yeah, 40. 42nd well, parallel? 40, 41, 41. Okay. Yeah, 41, 42. And it's pretty much uninhabitable here. Ken, have you started preparing for your retirement? Yeah, I think the mistake people make is not starting early enough. Yeah, that was me. I didn't start early enough. You were too rock and roll. I was too rock and roll. I, uh, in fact, even 10 minutes ago, I hadn't started. <laughs> But what changed your mind? Was it the new year? Yeah, the beginning of the new year, I said, this is a great time to finally start uh, thinking about my financial future. Like all the good intentions you have are things you have been putting off during the year. You know, you're going to eat healthier. You're going to hit the gym. I'm finally going to take my financial future seriously. Uh, It's the easiest one of those three things to do. You can just sit on your butt and check out Wealthfront.com. Tell me more about Wealthfront.com. It's a way to start investing easily in no time. You use Wealthfront's classic portfolio, or you can adapt it on your own with the things you care about, whether that's socially responsible funds, or if you want an emphasis in technology or crypto or whatever it is. It's just products designed by financial experts that help you turn your good ideas into great investments without having to obsess about doing everything yourself. But when I go online and use stock trading uh, apps, like I don't know anything about trading stocks. How does this, how is Wealthfront going to keep me from, from making errors? It's complementary to stock trading. You know, there's so many investment apps that make it easy to start trading, but that doesn't mean you're going to immediately know how to do it right. Uh, Wealthfront as a platform is designed to make it easy to invest and grow your savings with a diversified portfolio. Well, what about my taxes? I mean, that's one of the big things that confuses the uh, the heck out of me. They can help you lower your tax bill, John. They'll help you rebalance your portfolio even if you don't know what it means. Their product is so simple, so powerful. It's got a 4.9 out of 5 rating in the Apple App Store. Wow. Here's what I want you to do, John, yeah. if you're serious about investment planning. Yeah. To start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free. Go on. For life. What? Go to Wealthfront.com slash Omnibus. You're saying if I go to W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash Omnibus, I can start building my wealth today? That is correct, John, and very well spelled. Go to Wealthfront.com slash Omnibus and get started today. You know, the encouragement of the Argentine government led this small group to form a committee in Liverpool and kind of say, you know, we're the we're the face of Welsh nationalism and we love Wales so much we are getting the hell out of here. <laughs> That's how much we love Welsh culture. Yeah, they went up to Liverpool to have the conference. Well, right? they had to, they needed a printing press. Yeah, right. You gotta find somebody who can read. No. <laughs> or write. But, but they did go to Liverpool and produce, you know, a book called in Welsh Colony Handbook, which was like <sighs> Here's what here's what the rules are going to be. Here's how the new settlement is going to work. Here's how we're going to bring Wales to a Welsh-starved South America. And what did that entail? <laughs> they, had, <laughs> they had to write down 
a culture first before they could export it somewhere. A lot of it seems to be language-based. Oh, yeah. You know, like, you know, signage and everything, but also just, you know, here's how the farming will work. You know, this is going to be like the traditional agriculture of Wales. We can grow the same crops, but also some new ones. The uh, I realized this is actually a plot point in, I assume you've read A Wrinkle in Time. Yes. The children's classic by Madeline Langle. Am I saying that right? Yes. Is that a real name? It is. Seems like she her name was Madeline Engel, and she was like, but the French Longel. It's like uh, it's like Brice de Je pancake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> somebody got the somebody got the punctuation wrong, and he was like, yeah, you know, I think I'll keep that. Uh, it was her middle name as a child, but it was a surname. It was her great grandmother's surname. Anyway, the Wrinkle in Time is even though it's a deeply odd book, it is somehow it spoke to some generation of. 1970s Americans so strongly that it kind of became a, a perennial children's classic. In the fourth grade, I I found A Wrinkle in Time to be very unsettling. It it uh, it spooked me, and and its status as like a beloved children's book, I've never understood. And it's I, not cuddly at all. No, it, was, you're always kept. It always keeps you off balance. There's a trio of witches, but then they turn out to be interplanetary yeah. witches who can send you into space, and then you. There's a kind of a yeah, little Charles a, has got spooky powers. A, yeah, the, the the main character's little brother turns out to be a mutant, yeah. and there's they go to some interplanetary, like just some kind of outer space authoritarian, like a fascist dystopia yeah. in space. No, I didn't like it at all. My, you know, my daughter's in fourth grade, and she kind of you know breezily mentioned at some point some plot point from A Wrinkle in Time. And I said, wait, have you read A Wrinkle in Time? And she said, oh, yeah, you know, just, you know, no eye contact, like, oh, sure. And I said, well, now, wait a minute. I read it in fourth grade, and it really bothered me. Tell me about it. And she recounted the entire book as though it were the most natural sort of like, oh, and then, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, you you weren't spooked by this at all? And she was like, no, I mean, I've. I've watched the first three Star Wars movies. Like, there's nothing, and and by which she means you blasted the nerves <laughs> off. We've all blasted the nerves off our Gen Z kids. Yeah, so. and she she's talking about the Padme movies, right? So she's just like, I mean, she's it's, seen it all. When, when it comes to she's unintelligible seen, plots, she's seen Jar Jar uh, <laughs> uh, propose martial law. Yeah, she has. So uh, there are in that series. In addition to A Wrinkle in Time, there are kind of four lesser known sequels each of which kind of has the same mix of mysticism. You know, the first book has witches, but also like four-dimensional geometry. And the other books are like that too. I think the second one takes place in some kind of micro-universe where we all have little um, angels living in our mitochondria. And the the third book has unicorns and time travel. Sure. And it's all set in a Welsh, a fictional Welsh state in South America that I think, if I remember right, has the bomb and is about to start World War III. So it's it's an even more nightmare-inducing Gen X book because it has like Reagan-era day-after stuff in it. Yeah, it's like tripods or something. Yeah, exactly. I, I read A Wind in the Door and A Sw- Swiftly Tilting Planet. That's the one with the Welsh South Americans in it. And I, I, again, I felt like I was being I, not forced exactly because I, I chose the books myself, but... Yeah, kind of forced by expectation. And I the whole time I was like, can't I go? 
isn't there some kind of book where there isn't four-dimensional time travel uh, nuclear Welsh apocalypse? They have their own weird vibe, Yeah, these books. And maybe that's maybe I mean, kids react are okay with that kind of dream logic. They're just like, oh, okay, now the witches are space aliens. Got it. Yeah, um, some kids. Your kid, apparently. Yeah, she's fine. The um, and so when I read that third book, I was like, what kind of a weird? I mean, just I assumed it was one of the many fanciful inventions of Madeline Lengel that there would be a Welsh speaking um, generalissimo. Did you read in it South recently? America? No. Oh. <laughs> I mean, yes, in that I think 1989 is recent. Right. Um, but no. Uh, but in, when I was reading up on this, I was like, oh, that's where the Welsh South Americans in in A Wrinkle in Time come from. They come from this actual colonization movement in the 19th century. In May 1865, the tea clipper Mimosa set sail from uh, Liverpool, I believe, with 150 Welshmen on board who have been recruited by this leafleting campaign and are excited to get 40 acres and a mule in Awaladva, which is Welsh for the colony, which was the only name that these guys had come up for for their little <laughs> patch of Eden in uh, in Patagonia. You know, that's one month after the American Civil War ended. So probably, probably uh, like- Do you think a, they were waiting for the yeah, maybe crossing a, to be safer? Uh, yeah, a newly, a newly safe time to get, to pack yourself onto a ship. Like, I never- I never go on any important travel until I'm sure that Abraham Lincoln is good and dead. <laughs> Do, good news, kids. Abraham Lincoln's dead. We can go. Do you log on to the Civil War Index to make sure there's <laughs> not one in in, uh, in Oakland before you fly to SFO? Yeah, I always check Fox News to make sure there's no civil wars in Seattle or Portland. Yeah, and there always are. So they land in what was then and is still is today an Argentine province called Chubut mm-hmm. uh, or Chubbutt. Yeah, Chubbutt. Let's call it that. Uh, in, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the middle of the three stacked Argentine provinces that make up Patagonia, the Southern tip of South America. And they get there and they are bummed because what they thought was going to be a green, you know, like the green hills and dales and river valleys of home is in fact dry, barren, infertile prairie without a tree to offend the eye. Really? Um, they don't, you know, they don't even have wood to build shelters with. So they start digging into the soft rock of the cliffs on the beach where they land and basically, you know, kind of have to become like sandstone Mesa Verde style cliff dwellers at first just to get out of the rain. Even on the coast. Yes. There's no, even though it's raining all the time, there's no plant life. It's both raining and barren somehow. Wow. Maybe there's a rain shadow effect from the Andes. Yeah, So right. what they thought would be drizzly, but like the drizzles of home, but then it turns out not to be green at all. Um, what We think, it, being in the Northwest, um, we think of the Pacific cyclones as as being a kind of northern spinning, like clockwise spinning weather pattern. Um but is that true in the Southern Hemisphere too? I think so. I mean, the you know, famously the Atacama Desert has places that have never seen a single drop of rain in recorded meteorology. And I think that's for the same reason. There's a, you know, there would be Pacific cyclones there, except there's mountains in the way. Right. So it's the same reason why. Never seen a single drop of rain. Yeah. What would that be like? I mean, there are still, there's still plant life there, but it um, subsists on the mists that come in off the ocean they can just pull a little bit of water vapor directly from the air right and survive these hardy succulents i think a lot of these rainless places actually did have 
some unexpected rain and even flooding a couple of years ago, possibly as a result of messed up Pacific weather patterns. But it's, yeah, it's the driest place on earth. They shoot, they, you know, they'll, they test Mars rovers there uh-huh. and stuff because it's so inhospitable. And in that same rain shadow come our 150 hardy Welshmen and it sucks. Um, they should have just all died immediately. I'm not saying should in a, um, uh-huh. like a, a teleological sense that like, I don't want them to die. But by all rights, luckily, as you point out, there were native peoples there. In this case, the Tewelche Indians who were like, oh, you poor guys. Um, here's how you get food. Here's the only way to, to yeah, to scratch out a living here. And what was it? To tubers or fish? Yeah, I'm sure it's, um, I'm sure it's a combination. It's usually tubers and fish. Tubers right? and fish. Tubers and fish. That sounds like a Seattle restaurant. Mm, tubers and fish. The, uh, and then there's also, because there's a, an a, now an apparatus in Wales of we must support our brave colonists, there's also a series of care packages, you know, uh, yeah. humanitarian missions across the Atlantic, bringing in coffee and cigarettes, bringing in food shipments. Um, this is, this is so sad that this is the Welsh attempt to colonize the world. If you think about Portugal. But you know, it's not that different than what happened. You know, think about Virginia and Cape Cod yeah, in the right. 17th century. You know, it's just. A bunch of people who have fervor, right? Some kind of puritanical fervor, but have no idea what they're doing, right? In in uh, in like Virginia, the, they were carried away by the mosquitoes, but down here, there's just no, there's no, nothing will grow. It would basically be like me trying to plan a camping trip <laughs> to Lake Chelan. It, it's, it's not that different. <laughs> I bought some stuff at our at REI. Yeah, I, I, the pictures are very nice. I feel like I can get it'll this. Be, it'll stove be fun. Lit. Yeah, I know how to put this stuff on top of my car. And I know how to, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm going to make freeze-dried stroganoff tonight, kids. (laughs) They end up heading 40 miles west. They they get away from the coast and head, you know, into the plains. And they find a river valley, uh, which is what saves them. And they begin, they're like, okay, this is it. This looks a little more Welsh. We got a source of fresh water now coming down from the mountains. Um, It's the Rio Chubut, you know, what the Argentines would call the Chubut River today. But they give charming Welsh names to everything. To them, it's Afon Kamwi. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've, they've found little villages named, you know, where, you, you know, you and I would be like, well, this should be Proto Gallegos. No, no, no. This is Trello and Trevelyan and, you know, just Welsh names for their new world. Right. Um, which is, you know, really kind of makes you see how funny it is when the, as Anglophones, we're blinded to how funny it was when our language tried it in Virginia and Massachusetts in the 70s, you know, put out all these maps saying, and here's Queen Charlotte's Sound. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, you still, uh, uh, raising a child who's like, uh, who gradually has those questions like, well, wait a minute, New York. Well, where's old York? Yeah, where's old York? And I'm like, here it is on a map. And she's like, huh, New Jersey. And I'm like, we can do this all day. (laughs) Where's South Wales? The, uh, so they start planting corn, principally, uh, potatoes and then corn or maize along the banks of the Rio Chubut in their new, it makes them sound Hebrew, Rio Chubut. Yeah, right. Well, and they're Chibut, bringing... Chubut Shalom, John. Chubut Shalom. To you as well. Um, I, uh, they're bringing new world crops, but through Wales and back to <laughs> yeah, the new world. I ex- think that's exactly right. <laughs> potatoes and corn having caught on back there as cheap... Right, cheap and hearty caloric sources they bring back to where they once belonged, but um, maybe not this far south. It's, and then they they grab guinea pigs and take them up to Pennsylvania. 
Man, I still remember the look on my kids' faces when they heard that the Incas ate guinea pigs. Well, you can still get fried guinea pig down in South America. Sure. Guinea pig on a stick. Um, I have a, my kid, my youngest kid is currently just in love with all South American rodents, capybaras, yeah. agouti. They're very cute. And tapers, which are not rodents, but are capybara adjacent. You can, you can keep a capybara as a pet, can't you? Yeah, it's called the keepybara. <laughs> I don't know. Can you? Yeah, I guess. I've seen cute videos online of capybaras eating watermelon and stuff. So. Yeah, they're the size of like a pot-bellied pig. They're the biggest rodent in the world. But you know what? They don't have the long tail. It just goes to show that like. The thing that we don't like about rats and mice is that awful tendril. Yeah, 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 right. If a squirrel, a squirrel has a big a big furry tail and we're like, ha ha, look, a squirrel took my sandwich. Uh, and prairie dogs, everybody loves a prairie dog. Sure. No a, tail. A rodent with a little tasteful tail, we love. Yeah. All, we'll eat capybara all day. Yeah. Just don't have the spaghetti ones. The um, Guinea pig butts are so cute. They really are. It's, that's why I don't eat them. I don't eat anything <laughs> with a cute butt. That's my... That's my rule. Reep, reep, reep. The problem with planning along this river is it's a river out of the Andes and it floods like all the time. Oh, correct. It floods every year. So immediately the colon, the Welsh are now in danger again because every time the river floods, it just washes away their fields of potatoes and maize and they're back to square one and they're starving and the Tewelchi are just bringing them dried fish being like you morons. Did the population increase from 150 with successive waves of... Of uh, Welsh colonists? Only thanks to the work of one Rachel Jenkins. She's the hero of the story. I think she's the wife of the, you know, the mayor or whatever the head of the of the colony is. And she notices that the disastrous floods that are wiping away their fields also leave, like, amazingly fertile soil in right. their wake. Like, the only place in Patagonia that has fertile soil. And she goes to her husband and says, an irrigation system will save us. You know, right. if we if we can just control this. So thanks to Rachel Jenkins' plan, uh, plan, you know, an irrigation system is built. Now there's a food source, and then now people are coming in. Then um, they built an Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they start expanding. It's it's. You know, I guess it's not that different from the Mormons in Utah. You know, they get big enough. Okay, some of you go over to that hill. Right. Some of you head south to the to the river. North to Idaho. Uh, Idaho. Go to L.A. Go to wherever you go to Vegas. At the time, there's a real the coal prices have plummeted for whatever reason in Wales at the end of the 19th century. So now there's a new group of uh, out-of-work Welshmen looking for a promised land. So that boosts their population. And by 1915, there are 20,000 people oh. in uh, Owaladfa and surrounding colonies. The problem is the colony becomes a victim of its own success. Uh, oh, boy, that's true for me too. They're trying to maintain their Welsh cultural purity. But as soon as the word gets out, hey, there's a... Uh, there's fertile land and, and prosperity as far as the eye can see in the German uh, show in up. Chibut. Yeah, it's you know Spanish speaking and Portuguese speaking and you know all kinds of other groups come. So they were speaking Welsh. These were these were true, truly like the the last bastion of old Wales. That was the whole plan, right? Welsh publishing, Welsh schools for the children, Welsh signage, Welsh Bibles on Sunday. Um, but by 1915, half of the population is now non-Welsh speaking. And also the fact that they're now a, a prosperous and successful colony now attracts the attention of the Argentine government, who at first was happy to be like, yeah, nobody wants to be down there. You do your own thing. If you can keep out the Ch Chileans and we don't care if you kill the indigenous people, go nuts. 
But as soon as they start doing okay, the Argentines are like, well, hold on a second. You guys don't get to have your own mayor. You know, so Argentina, you know, uh, reneges on their colonial agreement and imposes direct rule. They Welsh, in other words, <laughs> on the deal. They, they Argentine on the deal is what I'm saying. What's interesting is that although there was a community of 20,000 people, they were not able to establish the Welsh language as the principal language, the people that moved in didn't learn Welsh. Do you think it's a sign of the inherent awfulness of the Welsh language? I mean, I wonder because, or I wonder like what the population density is where you, where you can establish actually a dominant culture and not have people that speak Spanish come in and go, yeah, 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 your Welsh stuff and everything. But I wonder if it was weakened by the fact that even the, the uh, ethnically Welsh founders couldn't read we, we, no <laughs> i was gonna say they were raised in an anglophone environment where that you know their english might have been better than their welsh right so even if on paper this is a welsh paradise maybe it just gets diluted by a lot of english use you know by the newbies showing up right um so at that point in 1915 when argentina steps in then the schools stop teaching welsh and you know that kind of becomes the end of of welsh purity in South America. And the weird thing is that for the next few decades, the colony continues, um, you know, through the end of its first century, basically with no contact with Wales. Huh. Like, like Wales is full of Welsh men and women who have no idea that there actually is a thriving dot of Wales, you know, a dot of land that is forever Wales uh, in Southern Argentina. Weird. I mean, it's, I guess it's a result of you know, difficult transoceanic travel. Plus if there's, you know, this is the, we're getting into the age of telegraphy, but if there's two places, it's going to get too late. It's probably Wales and Patagonia. <laughs> right. So there's that, that all changes in 1955 just because of the media. Um, well, two things. Well, first in 1955, the colony celebrates its centennial or at least the centennial of the idea or something. I guess that wouldn't be 55. It would be in the sixties. Anyway, mid 20th century, the centennial of the colony gets some ink and that's when, you know, Welsh reporters go down there to check it out and the BBC sends a team. And so suddenly there's some awareness in Europe of this weird oddity and that there, persists on the, on the plains. So there were still tens of thousands of Welsh people, even into the 1950s? They're descendants, yeah. although maybe they're increasingly speaking Spanish, Spanish. Or, or something with a Welsh elective in, in school or in, you know, night classes for interested parties. Um, the other thing that actually brings these these odd colonies to world attention is in the Falklands war. Uh, a group of Argentine POWs are being repatriated and uh, a Welsh soldier is shocked to hear one of them try to speak to him in Welsh. And it turns out that one of these Argentine guys on the other side had been, you know, had been drafted or enlisted from one of these colonies and was a native Welsh speaker. You know, this, uh, this made the headlines obviously back in Britain, you know, repatriated Argentine soldier speaks amazing Welsh. And, uh, those two news cycles kind of created a new awareness of this and has, has produced the world we're living in today where every summer flights to Britain from South America are full of Welsh ancestral people coming home to the, uh, Eisted Fod. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Kind of the big cultural festival. It's an, it's an arts and a music and a literary competition and festival. Um, and the, you know, Welsh Communities have them all over, but I think the biggest one is in Cardiff every year. And uh, now every year, it's a big South American tourist destination for local 
Welsh South American poets and musicians and spectators um, heading to Wales to see the action. I wonder if their Welsh is is heavily like accented. If it's became like a like an Afrikaans where it's intelligible, but but a different language almost. What if it's Welsh, but like in a thick, like maybe like borderline offensive, like Speedy Gonzalez or, or, uh-huh. or Mask of Zorro kind of accent? It's interesting in the in the Argentine War that the Welsh population did not form a fifth column, <laughs> but fought for Argentina, or at least in the case of this one guy. I assume that's um, that's their, just their coal miner heritage. They Even 100 years later, they weren't siding with Maggie Thatcher. And that concludes Welsh Patagonia, entry 1421.de2609, certificate number 53240, in the omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, please do not flame us with hashtag Welsh pride or really flame Ken, because I'm not on the internet. We're both Welsh. Like, yeah. we're, we're allowed to say these things. Yeah, we're, the, we're, we're some of the only Americans that are allowed to spend an entire episode subtly slurring the Welsh people, because we actually love Wales. Two things. One, because we're so authentically Welsh. Yep. And two, because there actually are no offensive Welsh stereotypes in America to, to leverage here. I wonder. I'm sure Welsh nationalists have a list as long as their arm of Welsh slurs that they feel like people in the UK and America either unwittingly or intentionally use to diminish Welsh sovereignty. It's offensive to say we're really into rugby, actually. Welsh people like all the sports. You know, there is a Welsh nationalist movement. Yeah. Like, we talk about the Scottish one a lot, but can you imagine a self-governing Wales? <laughs> <laughs> Woo! What, what's what's funny about that? I mean, what would I just feel like? Even the Welsh people that I know aren't self-governing. They'll uh, they'll have tubers and fish. They'll but, be fine. But I mean, I have I uh, the I feel like the Welsh part of me has no inhibitions. That's the problem. Yeah, that's th- that's the part of me that that swings for the fences. But you. Have, there's no part of you that has no inhibitions. You're governed on all four sides. No, I'm, I'm surely for Protestant England in this scenario. Although I right. would like to see Bonnie Tyler be the head of state. Oh. Right? Yeah. President Bonnie Tyler of, of an independent Wales. I like it. Yeah, let's have it be an independent Wales like independent Scotland, where they make their own currency, but in fact, it's just a sham. Uh, and that's a little slur for Scotland just at the end, just at the end of the show. I have no Scots heritage, so I, I, I'm... Yeah, you're not allowed to say No, I'm going to be pegged for it. Uh, you can find Ken online at Ken Jennings. You can find Omnibus online at Omnibus Project. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can uh, go to Facebook or other social media sites and look for Futurelings to share your experience, strength, and hope. You should. They're having a good time. Yeah, they're a fun group. You can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155, and support the show if you agree with us that Wales and Scotland are ludicrous. No. If you believe that Wales and Scotland do not actually exist. We're, we were... Conspiracy of cartographers. We, I, I don't want to speak for you, Ken, but I was, I was opposed to Brexit. How, where did you fall on it? I'm extremely anti-Brexit. Yeah. Uh, the Welsh and the English were uh were the problem i believe is that true 
No, uh, wait. I think I think the Scots did not approve Brexit. And, but there's one but, other. Is it Wales or Northern Ireland? I feel like Northern Ireland did, but Wales didn't. England and Wales are the problem. England and Wales. So Northern Ireland wanted to stay. They finally agree on something. They hate the French. I believe that the Scots feel a lot more akin to Europeans. I think just that's just in general. That's just their hatred of the English. Honestly. Yeah. Well, but it's like their Protestant church feels very Swiss to me. <laughs> <laughs> you think Scotland will eventually become a colony of Switzerland, or the, or vice versa? Or vice versa. Right. Um, and uh, we encourage you to support Omnibus for uh, all of our anti-UK xenophobia. At patreon.com slash omnibusproject, your generous contributions uh, include many rewards, including this show, which was suggested by a listener. Pablo. Thank you, Pablo. We definitely need your support to um, make up for all the uh, pledges from Welsh and Scottish listeners that we'll be losing after this. Episode. No, I believe that the uh, that uh, Welsh people at least have a good sense of humor. That's the other thing. They have a good sense of humor. A, a melodious voices and a and a wry, self-deprecating sense of humor. Let's, who are your ten favorite Welsh comedians, John? Go. <sighs> ten favorite Welsh comedians. <laughs> I can't pronounce any of their names. You know, I I I I enjoy the band Future of the Left, and I've been a uh, like an online friend of their lead singer for many years. And uh, they're Welsh. Uh, yeah, and I I would say Super Furry Animals are my go-to Welsh band. Is that right? Yeah, I think they sometimes they even sing in Welsh. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm le- less familiar with their work. Rob Bryden. There's a Welsh comedian that I know. Okay. Okay. I can do, I can name one Welsh comedian. Um, Tom Jones is funny. Tom Jones is not that funny. Richard oh. Burton was, was, could be f- not really when funny drunk. actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he was pretty serious about himself. Love that Richard Burton interview though. Highly recommend. This is an entire omnibus about an old Dick Cavett show you just watched. <laughs> I spent I spent a good four days just watching Dick Cavett interviews with the great actors of mid-century England. And uh they're all very serious. There's not a there's not a lighthearted one in the bunch. Really? Yeah, because even on a chat show. No, they're just they're they're I mean Dick Cavett brings out the earnestness in people. Mm. Earnestness. Um, but yeah, they're all talking about their craft and they're all like, they're dead serious about one another. But I like all the stories when they stick it to method actors, you know, like Olivier getting sick of Dustin Hoffman on Marathon Man. And yeah. Saying, and saying, why don't you try acting there, boy? It's ever, there was one of those <laughs> this good. week. Did you see the Brian Cox thing in the, there's a, a profile of Jeremy Strong on Succession about what a self-serious young man he is about his craft. And they quote Brian Cox, who's basically like. I just worry about that kid. Like, what's going on in his? Is, that, is he going to be okay? Like, what a weirdo! <laughs> Anthony Hopkins said, "Like, I don't like acting or the theater. I, as soon as I'm done with the role, like, I go home and and try and pretend that I'm not an actor." See, simple, humble Welshman. Richard Richard Burton said that he never he didn't ever want to see Olivier because in shows because he felt like they were too similar and he didn't want to. He didn't want to be influenced by his acting. Ooh, yeah, but he would go to see Alec Guinness because they were so different from one another that he felt like he could enjoy the acting of Alec Guinness. Is that a little humble brag to be like, I can't co-star with the greatest actor of his generation because we're just our talents are too similar. Well, it was weird. He said, we don't look alike, but our 
but we occupy the same uh, physical space. Like he has a similar face to mine. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And then I looked at pictures of them from that era and it was weirdly true. Like, huh, they do kind of occupy f- a similar. F- they, have, they both have kind of a musical voice. I can, mm. I can see a vocal similarity. Well, this is the kind of amazing content you'll find on Omnibus. This show would have ended 10 minutes ago, except we wanted to talk about uh, Sir John Mills on the Mike Douglas show. <laughs> Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe fear may never come. I mean, if it does come, the Welsh in Patagonia may be the last survivors. Hmm. Maybe we should decamp to there. It seems safe. You can dig into the soft rock of the cliffs and become Mesa Verde people again. I'll never swear allegiance to Galtieri, no matter how uh, how much pompous he gives. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>